So hello, everyone. And again, thank you to CIMC and all of my good friends there. It's quite an honor to be joining all of you again. <clears throat> so I actually thought we could begin um, with a little bit of a group harvest. And of course, there's no obligation, but if you're up for it, maybe just a couple of words in the chat. Um, how are you? <laughs> what are you bringing to Sangha this evening? Really any words that come to mind. Just nice to kind of hear what you're bringing and yeah, get a variety of voices here in the chat. So I think you can chat to everyone, hopefully. Great. Um, my words would be uh, soft and um, connected. It's been quite sweet to think about this theme of practice as relationship with, so I'm excited to share with you. Buzzing and acceptance of buzzing. <laughs> yes, thank you. Body is tired. Me too. Yeah, me too. Uncertainty, especially with the world opening up. Yeah, there's a lot of that for sure. Present and content. Yeah. Buddha, don't do justice. Frustrating. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Tired, happy. It's nice out today. It's actually really hot here in Ashland. We're having a big heat wave. It's unseasonably warm. It got up to 100 yesterday. And so we're all kind of managing that, the heat here. <clears throat> yeah. See if there's any other words coming. Itchy. <laughs> Thank you. It's all mixed, isn't it? This being human. Yeah, happy to be part of Sangha again. Thank you. Yeah, it's really so sweet to tap in to your space here. Discontent. Yep, this is here too. Mm -hmm. And this too, and this too. Yeah. So I'm going to share some thoughts with you about relationship. And this is all uh, somewhat new. I just taught a retreat at IMS last weekend with a couple of my good friends, Yang O oh and Nolita Tsingiwe. And we taught on this theme of relationship in the Dharma of uh, devotion. What does it mean to devote ourselves? And then a responsiveness that comes, a kind of compassion. So I wanted to share some thoughts with you from my own discoveries this weekend on that retreat and also um, stories. I just love Dharma stories. And so I thought I would share some of my own practice stories with you.
So in some ways, I think we can frame the entirety of the path as a cultivating of skillful relationship. For those of you who meditated with us just now, often we begin by taking refuge. And when we rest our heart in the three refuges, in awakening and truth and community, we're in some ways building a skillful relationship with these refuges. We're finding a kind of safety and protection or responsiveness. And you might notice, of course, we all have different relationships to this practice of taking refuge, but there can be a kind of deeper resting into the moment, maybe a deeper trust, or learning to be with things as they are moment to moment, and honing our uh, connection to them, right? Honing our connection to the refuges, honing our connection to, the, to this moment, and perhaps building skillful relationship with ourselves, with others, and also with the world. And so this term, yoniso manasikara, I wanna spend a little bit of time with this term that means wise attention. So yoniso is a beautiful word that literally means a womb, or it can mean origin point, beginning, that fertile ground from which everything comes. And manasikara is attention. So what does it mean to place our attention at the origin of things, right? Or in what really is meaningful? This wise attention said to be cultivated through the practice is in some ways all we need. It's so onward leading because it's said that when we have wise attention, the wholesome qualities grow and the unwholesome qualities diminish. Mary Oliver, she has this one line I've really been thinking about quite a lot. She says, attention is the beginning of devotion. And so placing our attention, what are we attending to? What are we devoting ourselves to? What's the most important thing? What's the womb or the origin point in each moment? What's the meaning here? The most important thing, honoring that which is worthy of honor, perhaps. And so if you're anything like me, there can be this kind of tumbling into the next moment, right? moment by moment by moment, we rush forward, we're always anticipating what's coming next. And yet when we can slow down, I can put down my to-do list, Sometimes throughout the day, I'll remember, oh, I can look out at the sky, maybe notice that the red-winged blackbirds are here now this season and listen to their very distinct call. Notice the sunlight on the leaves. And there's this taking it in. Oh, yeah. Attending to this moment, cultivating a wise relationship with it. And in some ways, then my, my heart can rest a little deeper 
into the present moment. And sometimes there's even a kind of, um, a, it's a devotion there. Sometimes I know these words, devotion, faith can kick up a lot for people, but what would it mean to sort of devotion as arresting the heart? So I got very curious about these words, attention, attending to, tending, and then maybe even tenderness. I looked at the, the word root and this word ten is a Proto-Indo-European root, which means to stretch or to connect like a string. So this is interesting, isn't it? With the relationship to things. And it forms part of many different words. Some of these words mean to sing or to chant, to carry a tune. Or temple, a building for worship. To incline, to move towards. And of course there's tenderness or there's to tender, to offer. We're offering our attention. And even the word tent, a portable shelter. It's interesting, isn't it? Like a refuge. And so how is it to view practice as this continual connecting again and again to that which is worthy of our attention? And perhaps even a kind of honoring, honoring the moment and honoring our living, breathing bodies, our tender hearts, and also honoring that which is worthy of honor in others. So I think Nico mentioned in the introduction, I, I practice both um, insight meditation in the early Buddhist tradition and also Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, several beloved Tibetan teachers, mainly Karma Kagyu. And so there's this word in Tibetan that I want to share, and this reminded me as I was discovering all of this about the word ten, that there's a colloquial word in Tibetan, tendrel. So I looked this up. Tendrel in formal Tibetan means paticca samupada or interdependent co-arising, the 12 links, dependent origination. And in colloquial Tibetan, ten means, so tendrel, ten is to depend and drel is connection. So tendrel, when it's used um, in common parlance, it means a kind of karmic connection, teacher to student, that can last across many lifetimes. And this can be teacher-student, but it can also be Dharma friends, spiritual friends. That it's said when we meet our teacher, we meet our, our friends, there's tendril there. There's some kind of past history or connection. So this reminded me of this story of of the previous Kalu Rinpoche. He taught mainly in the 70s and the 80s. He had done 
25 years of retreat in the mountains in the Himalayas before coming out and then traveling around the world and many Western students. So in the seventies, the first place he came in the West was Vancouver, Canada. And they had a lot of very young hippie Canadian students there. And there's this story, actually one of those students is now my Lama, Lama Jujo. And so he tells the story of meeting with Kalu Rinpoche in a park in Vancouver. And there were all of his Western students there gathered around and Kalu Rinpoche and he had an apple and he was slicing this apple and, you know, sort of talking about the Dharma. I think it was kind of an informal Dharma conversation. And every once in a while, as he was teaching, he would throw an apple slice at somebody and it would hit them in the chest and you try to catch it. Who's throwing these apple slices at people, hitting them. And at some point, Lama Drubju said that he realized, oh, what he's doing here actually is creating tendril. He's creating a kind of karmic connection. And the previous Kala Rinpoche actually was known as the master of meaningful connections. That everyone he met, there was a kind of meaningful um, ongoing kind of honoring of this meeting, that it's not by chance, right? And we felt that in our teachers, haven't we sometimes when it's so um, important, that connection, the transmission of Dharma and a kind of mind to mind, heart to heart meeting. So I think As with any relationship, we're talking about our relationship to the Dharma, it can be a little messy at times. And I know for me, I've had these ups and downs, but certainly just like perhaps falling in love, I had a very long honeymoon with the Dharma early on and fell very deeply in love. I remember uh, my first retreat was at Spirit Rock know if any of you have been to Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Um, It had been recently opened. This was a young adults retreat I sat um, in June of 2001. So almost exactly 20 years ago, um, young adults retreat there. It was a week. And I remember so many meaningful moments, but I definitely had a deep connection with a lizard it was so mystical by experience with the way that they were moving and their relationship with the environment and their relationship with me and the push-ups and the it was so beautiful and so um meaningful as a connection and then at the end of that week i was climbing the hill Those of you who have been might know they have this big loop hike, very steep, climbs the ridge. And I've never been on that path before. And it was a hot day. It's kind of huffing and puffing up the hill. And I remember just sort of out of nowhere, someone, another yogi from the retreat came down, was coming down the path. And we probably wouldn't do this nowadays, but they just offered me their water bottle, their sip of water. And I was so sort of struck, you know, we'd been in silence and we hadn't been making eye contact and just this simple gesture in silence, seeing that it was a hot day. And I felt um, 
just felt the power of this practice, you know, that can cultivate such kindness and such tenderness and such connection, even in silence, even without looking at each other. I'm so moved. It's just a simple act of generosity. And so in Zen, they have this phrase, uh, the way-seeking mind. And I think in some ways with that retreat, my way-seeking mind was born. This sense of, oh, there's something really meaningful here. Yoni So Manasikara wanting to look and penetrate into what's really here, what's, so, what's really true. And I can taste the potential I can see there's so much here that I'm not seeing and wanting so badly to see. So often there's, I have this sense of like wanting connection and this longing, right? A kind of yearning. And also I don't quite know how, you know, have you had that too? Where there's so much longing for freedom and that Sometimes that feels just sort of confusing in the midst of things and in the world as it is now. And so I went back to college as a sophomore in college and finished my degree, read a lot about meditation. I really wanted to study meditation in school. And back then in early 2000s, there wasn't much going on there. Academically, my psychology professors were like, you want to study what? <laughs> So I graduated and then I was lucky enough, um, right during my senior year to meet um, several Tibetan teachers who actually just moved to Ashland, my hometown. So I met them and I um, had the opportunity, very fortunate opportunity to travel with them on pilgrimage. So we went to um, Kathmandu and Dharamsala and Bodhgaya and Sarnath, all the many sacred places in the Buddha's life and also in the Tibetan diaspora, meeting the, the many great teachers in our Kagyu lineage. We met Karmapa and His Holiness Dalai Lama and Dharamsala and many others. Didn't even know who I was meeting at the time, but it was very special. And I remember in particular uh, visiting Bodhgaya. So Bodh Gaya being the place of the Buddha's enlightenment and now is this huge, big spreading Bodhi tree said to be the fourth generation, the same tree where the Buddha sat and a huge stupa and beautiful gardens all around surrounding where people can sit and practice and chant and bow. People from all over the world coming and Gosh, at that time I was what, 22, very innocent young person. I didn't really know all the implications of being, you know, in this group of mostly white Americans and the kind of spiritual tourist industry. I didn't have any real um, sensitivity about the cultural implications. But what I really knew then is was love. Looking back on it now, I see all these other complex layers, but what really stands out to me is this deep, um, there was something for my heart's longing to land on in Bodhgaya. So I had heard about this Tibetan practice of bowing, of prostrating. And in the preliminaries, those of you who know a bit about Vajrayana, you know we'd have to do 111,000 prostrations 
kind of the first practice you get. And I had heard about that and I thought, well, that is not for me. I'm just trying to find a job, like just out of college, I'm trying to figure out relationships. But in Bodh Gaya, they had all of these prostration boards all around the tree, facing the tree. And all these Tibetans in the morning would go early. And, you know, they have their kind of pot holders for sliding their hands and full body prostrations, just again and again bowing. It was so beautiful. And so I went to my lamas and I said, please, please teach me. I want, I want to do these prostrations. And so right there in their hotel room, <laughs> they so sweet in their robes, they're showing me, you know, full body, you get down, you do, you know, body, speech, and mind, bow, then slide out your whole body, slide back up. And there's a Tibetan mantra that you say that means I take refuge in the Holy Buddha, I take refuge in the Holy Dharma, I take refuge in the Noble Sangha. And it was so gung-ho, I woke up so early in the morning and I would join the stream of pilgrims going early. I think the compound opened at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, still dark, but you could hear chanting over the loudspeakers. And then you just choose a prostration board that's all polished from all the many prostrations. And I think I had my socks or something to slide on and just again and again reciting and bowing and holding the refuges in my, in my mind. And then early in the morning, the Tibetans would come by, nuns or monks would come by with these big carafes of butter tea and Tibetan flatbread for breakfast. And they share it out. And we would take a break. We're all kind of sweaty. <laughs> we'd take a break and just, you know, smile and sip tea together. And I just felt... Um, that moment is so indelible for me as it's such a deep sense of belonging. Participating in something bigger than me and such a deep connection. And now with all these years and training under my belt, I look back and I think, wow, there's, you know, all kinds of implications there. I was a white American girl learning all these Tibetan language, you know, language and chants. And I was wearing a Tibetan chuba, like cultural appropriation, like there's all, you know, complexity there. Definitely. Yes. And underneath that so much love, so much devotion, really. And this deep sense of connection, belonging. In that same place where the Buddha placed his hand on the earth, when besieged by storms of doubt. And I think tapping back into that energy of how it felt to lie my body down underneath that tree. For this particular conditioning, this body, heart, and mind, there was something very powerful about um, finding that sense of belonging. When doubt is so often my experience and um, I think whiteness often wants to say you don't belong. But learning this again and again, just from the physical act of, of bowing. And so again, as with any relationship, came back to the States, trying to find a job, trying to figure out my life, where I was going to live. And things were rocky. 
I had all this devotion and all this love. And yet how, where do I put it? How do I put this practice at the center of my life? There's actually a lot of dukkha there, right? This rub of like what, it, what I'm expected to do, kind of the formula for somebody in my social location, right? Look for a job and you get a house and you have kids. And there's something that didn't quite fit for me with all of that. Like, Yoni Somanasikara, like, what's the most important thing and how do I devote my life to this? And so I would talk to my llamas and I would go crying, like I was teaching high school at the time and saying, this is, um, there's something really meaningful about teaching, but I also just felt like, how do I give all of myself to these practices? And my llama said, well, you do a three-year retreat. <laughs> and that three-year retreat is kind of the gold standard in the Kagyu tradition. But if you really have the right kind of devotion, you will just go into seclusion and do that retreat. You have to finish all the preliminaries and raise money and learn Tibetan and go secluded away from the world for three years. And there's a big part of me that's like, all right, I guess I'm just going to do that. Right. But also knowing that felt kind of impossible. I'm an only child. I have older parents. How could I leave them for three years? And also there was a little bit of a disconnect between that gold standard and what maybe was most helpful for me, because I could see that for all the yearning of three year retreat, there was also a kind of bypassing like I just want to get out of here. <laughs> just get me out. It's too complicated. I just want to practice in peace. So there's this kind of like push pull. Is this really the right thing? But I have all this devotion, but it doesn't feel like it fits. And, and a kind of failure, actually, and again, this question of belonging, if I can do three year retreat, then I'm never going to be good enough. Right, that was some, somewhat in the messaging as well. But still kind of holding that aim in mind, doing nundro, doing the prostrations, the recitations, learning Tibetan. And at the same time, I was continuing to do retreats at Spirit Rock and IMS. And actually there, finding in my teachers, Eugene Cash and Joseph, particularly Joseph and Sharon also, some who were studying a little bit with Tibetans, there was so much accessibility. Oh, this Dharma, okay, they get it, <laughs> right? They're using metaphors that I understand. And a real possibility even in a 10-day retreat to wake up a little bit. So I was kind of stumbling through, and then I found myself beginning the community Dharma leaders training. And this was in 2010 at Spirit Rock, and it's a very particular one taught by Larry Yang and Gina Sharp and Tanisra and Eugene. And they had the particular aim of bringing together a very diverse cohort. So we had three people from South Africa and a bunch of Canadians and some folks from Mexico and all different ages and all different backgrounds. And it was the first time I felt we did so much relational practice. And I had such awakenings there. I was like, oh, this is deep Dharma. And it, we're talking <laughs> and we're relating. And this is actually the kind of freedom that my particular heart, mind, body might need, given my conditioning, my 
all of my identities. Oh, I need to wake up right here in relationship with all of these people, not in an offense locked away from the world. That's also a very valid path, absolutely. But I could see in that first week of training, oh, there's real potential to wake up right here in the middle of everything when it's quite messy, actually. And my heart sort of broke open again, like that moment of bowing in Bodh Gaya. Oh, this was another opportunity with my hundred other spiritual friends where I could participate in something bigger than me, something deeply meaningful a sense of what it means to wake up together. So continuing on, continuing to do training and retreats, and there was still this little voice in me that's like, but you're never gonna be good enough if you don't do three-year retreat, right? We're always holding ourselves to that impossible standard, setting the external, standard instead of listening in here. So on and on still for years. And then just 2017, maybe not so long ago, three or four years ago, I was at a retreat with Mingir Rinpoche. Myungi Mingir Rinpoche is my primary Tibetan teacher now. And I see some nods. He is known for, he's in his early 40s, he's somewhat young, and he's known for wandering off and doing this four and a half year wandering retreat. And then he came back and wrote a book about it called In Love with the World, beautiful book. And Rinpoche, he's, there's so much love for him. He's sort of short in stature, very bald, shiny head, impeccable robes. And at this retreat, I had the opportunity to have a 10 minute interview with him. And my partner and I had, were going in and we, we wanted to talk to him about our retreat practice and ask his advice. Like we're both very devoted. We want to do depth practice. We have the, you know, what do you think, Rinpoche? How can we do it? And so we had this sort of bullet point list. We went in and he's sitting there in his, in his dorm room. It was at a retreat in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And uh, sitting on this couch, cross-legged, yes, yes, nodding, listening to our plans. Okay, very good, very good. And then at the end of all of it, we asked Rinpoche, what advice would you have for us in making these plans, maybe for a three-year retreat or a long retreat, depth practice? And he looked at us and he said, yeah, it's very good, very good to plan, but you should save for retirement. <laughs> You know, we were expecting him to give us some practice, some deep transmission. We looked at each other. We said, save for retirement? <laughs> he said, yes, yes. You know, so many students, they don't think about money. They just devote themselves. They do all this depth practice. And then what are they going to do when they get old? They have no support. What are they going to do? We have to be practical. He fluffed his robes and he whisked away to another event. <laughs> <laughs> we were left, we sort of stumbled out of that dorm building and looked at each other and we thought, what just happened? Did he just tell us to save for retirement on retreat like we should work? And then we just burst out laughing because I think it dawned on me that he was actually meeting us right where we were at. He was saying, oh, these are your cultural conditionings. This is your situation. You need to be practical about things. Maybe your way of practice is working too. 
staying connected, staying engaged. It was such a beautiful sense of being seen and understood in a new way. So I think as I continue to stumble along, I guess maybe the current version of the story is that we've, we're so lucky with our Lama Lama Jubju, we're doing a three-year retreat curriculum, live here in a Tibetan temple in Ashland, um, but we work part-time and we're staying engaged and staying uh, connected. And it's a deeply humbling process. I can see why people do some of these practices in retreat. But again and again, the learning is every morning is even with this distracted mind and even with all this restlessness and a lot of self-doubt, how is it to really place my hand on this patch of earth and remind myself of that deeper belonging? That it's actually right here in this body, in all each of our bodies, that freedom and awakening happens. It's right here. It's not some plan, some big, you know, fancy polished plan that feels impossible. And what we're really doing here is cultivating a kind of clear seeing. This wise attention that knows the world as it is, that doesn't shy away from the truth of things, of injustice and ignorance and structural racism that knows that inside and outside, internally, externally, and continues to wake up even despite all of it. It takes, I mean, you all know, it takes a lot of ardency, doesn't it? We have to have a kind of fire So the great Zen master Suzuki Roshi, he said, when you do something, you should burn yourself completely like a good bonfire, leaving no trace of yourself. And I feel that's such a beautiful invitation to this kind of effort that it takes to walk this path in this time at this place. And with that kind of fiery devotion, we also need a deep softening of compassion. That relationship takes both, doesn't it? It takes a kind of commitment and also a deep allowing of all the very real suffering that's here. That kind of compassion is a little bit like accepting the milk rice from Sujata, that story of the Buddha when he was starving and he accepted the food. I feel in some ways my very imperfect three-year retreat here is a day-by-day -day accepting what's here. Okay, a little tired. You know, it's a little hot. Can we soften around it? And that kind of resting in the moment of being real with things as they are, I think, is a kind of tendril. A dependent connection with ourselves in the world. And I think the last piece of this is again learning a learn learning again and again the sense of we really can't do it alone. Thich Nhat Hanh's invitation, a reminder of interbeing. 
and the Dalai Lama's universal responsibility that we have to keep coming back to this sense of sacred connection of relying on each other. This one friend in uh, his name is George. He lives in Honolulu. He's a fourth generation Hawaiian, but also very honoring of his Okinawan roots. So Okinawa is a small island south of Japan, and it's technically part of Japan, but it has its own culture and language. And George taught us a lot about Okinawan culture when we lived there. And he was part of the community, the meditation community. And he was always there whenever I went to meditate. He was there, you know, giving people rides to and from the center and putting out food and moving chairs and cushions, really whatever needed to be done. And at one point we sat down and he was telling me about this Okinawan value that's called Yurimaru. And it's the origin, Yurimaru is the origin of many hands make the work light. The sense of cooperation and coming together when a project needs to be done. That friendship blossoms and there's a solidarity. Of course, it's much easier to move cushions when there's many hands. And his embodiment of that sense of we're doing this together such a beautiful teaching in that sense of Sangha. And this weekend, I was just teaching with my friend Nolita, who lives in Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, this, this, she's teaching me about this value of Ubuntu in the Zulu tradition, this honoring of I am because we are. You know, and how is it to live with that frame of participating in something bigger, trusting that? And for me, always hitting up against my delusions and my conditionings around separation, comparing mind and the sense of being alone in it all. But perhaps the path again and again is training this kind of belonging. And so perhaps as we continue, we come to understand the power of relationship, learning to rest the heart, to trust its natural responsiveness, right? Isn't that true? When we have, we rest our attention on what's meaningful, there's a kind of response in the heart. And we learn to be with what is in a bigger, wider, vaster way, courageous and connected. So I'll just end uh, the talk, this part of the evening with a poem called Remember. And this is by our poet laureate, Joy Harjo. She's the first Native American poet laureate. She's from the Muscogee Creek Nation. Remember. Remember the sky that you are born under. Know each of the stars stories. Remember the moon, know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn. That is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You were the evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, he is your life also. 
Remember the earth whose skin you are. Red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth. We are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them, listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind, remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember you are this universe and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language is, that life is. Remember. And so we continue to practice together and alone. And we might learn to bow in our own way. And we learn what is really truly worthy of our honor. Perhaps we're learning to belong to each other, to wake up together and walk each other home. So we can just let the word settle here for a moment in silence. So thank you for your kind attention. Oh, thank you everyone. Deep honor to be with you. And uh, may our Dharma paths continue to cross. We've created 10 drown now, so it's inevitable. <laughs> I'll just ring this bell to end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.